Praise the Lord. Thank you. And thanks for loaning me your microphone a minute ago. I absolutely forgot mine on my desk. Church family, I want to show you something. Hey, Carter, here's a curveball. Um, go back to verse 3 where it says, My sin not in part but the whole. Throw that up on the screen. So every, every, if you can, it's, it's in verse 3. I don't know if they're lined up like that for you. But um, it is well with my soul. We sing our confessions of worship every Sunday. Sometimes different words stand out to me. Maybe sometimes it's easy for us to not notice what we're singing. But as we were singing this, I just kind of pastorally wanted to stop and show you guys something that I thought was interesting. When I was a kid, I had awful theology, and that was nobody's fault but my own. I just kind of made my own theology up out of my head. I'd hear what the preacher said, I'd listen to my Sunday school lessons, and I would make my theology the best I could, and I didn't know how badly I was doing. Well, one of the bad pieces of theology that I accidentally created, not my preacher's fault, not my parents, just mine, is I sort of thought that when I got saved, Jesus forgave all the sins that I'd committed up to that day. And that if I committed another one tomorrow, well, that was a mark against me. And I, and I thought, well, and if I, every night I will say, you know, God, forgive me for that thing that I did today. You know, I, I stole my brother's Tonka truck or whatever. And if I forgot, then I would die with a sin against me. I am not sure if I'm going to heaven or not. I held that sorry theology for a long time. I was, as a little kid. I was not sure if I die today, do I get to go to heaven? Do I, do I, are all my sins forgiven? Turns out I'm not alone. In church history, there were some people that wanted to hold off on their baptism because they thought baptism took away your sins. They wanted to hold off on it till the day they died so they'd make sure they were all cleaned away. Guys, this is terrible theology. Horrible. The Bible teaches us that Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin for us and took our place so that you might become the righteousness of God, adopted sons and daughters, totally forgiven, a life for a life. You're not just marking sins off a list. He didn't forgive your sins in part, but the whole. So every sin that you ever committed or ever would commit was redeemed for you in Christ Jesus on the cross. And this is the theology that redeems and saves us. This is why Christ was your substitute and your life is fully atoned. And this is why you know that if you are in Christ Jesus and He is your Lord, you'll be with Him when you draw your last breath. In part, not in part, but the whole. I just, as I sang that, I wanted to give you that little bit of lanyap about how God fixed that in my mind. All right, so a couple of things as we get started. Number one, as a declaration of church family, as a sign that I love you and I prioritize you over my preferences, in my Sunday school class, on our church staff, we have some LSU fans. I'm here to wish you good luck. I stand in solidarity to you. You know how hard that is for me, but I'm for you today. God bless you. I'm rooting for you. <laughs> Second, Pam is taking our kids to camp as soon as we finish. And I, I thought this was pretty, pretty low. She, uh, she sent a kid to me right before church. She sent a precious Angel Carterville kid to me. And she said, hey, Miss Pam said for you to be short so we can go to camp. <laughs> and I, I am here to tell y'all, I have absolutely got that covered. In my opinion, I'm always short. I work with Sean Hampton, who's like 6'7". You know, I got, I mean, in my Sunday school class, I got 6'7", Evan Kraft, I got big old Chad Leggett. I am very short. Pam, every Sunday, I don't understand what you're complaining about. Let's pray together, and we'll jump into the Scriptures. Father, we love you, and we surrender to your love and your power. I surrender to Jesus Christ, and Lord, today, we accept no substitute. 
Not our traditions and customs, not our religions and preference, not our arrogance and pride. God, today as your family, as your bride, we lay ourselves on the altar and I pray that, Father, in your Holy Spirit, you would take total control of us. God, that you would redeem every nook and cranny. God, that you would shine the light of Christ into us and show what we've held back. So, Lord, today, if there's any one of us in this sanctuary that is not fully following you, totally chasing Christ, God, that today you would heal that and fix that in us. I ask for that in Christ's name. Amen. I pray that prayer because we're reading Luke chapter 5, verse 33 and to 39 together. Turn your Bibles there and let's dive into a passage that is familiar. Today I'm essentially preaching on the one hand about change and the struggle for change, but more so about a choice, a fundamental choice that everybody in the sanctuary has got to make. We've all got to decide if we are really going to follow Jesus Christ or if we're following our preferences, our customized religion. It could be a work self-righteousness. It could be religion that we grew up in as a kid. But I'm asking you today to choose whether you're going to wholeheartedly surrender to Jesus Christ and follow Him or whether you're going to hold on to religions of your preference and your own making. So let's read Luke chapter 5 together and we'll jump in and see what the Lord has to teach us. So in Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through verse 39, they said to him, they are some scribes and Pharisees. I'll show you that in a minute. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them, this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new. For they say the old is better. Okay, gang, we are listening to King Jesus teach us parables about sewing cloth and about storing wine in wineskins. But we use these two parables about the fabric and the cloth patch and about the wine and the wineskins, to talk about change. And I think that's okay, but I think there's a bigger picture. So as we walk through this text, I want to give you some cues to sort of hang your hat on as we move through this passage. The first thing I want to talk about is the context of the passage. If you're note-takers, I'll try to give you a little something to hang your hat on. So first of all, just so that you know, this statement about wine and wineskins, it did not happen like like out in thin air. It was actually a part of a bigger conversation. So let me show you that Jesus is actually talking about religion and about following Christ Jesus. So like, let's scoot back and take the big picture view. This is what's going on. First of all, if you look up in your text in verse 30, you'll recognize that he's talking to 
to Pharisees. Look in verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then in verse 33 it says, And they said to them, and then in verse 36 it says, And he told them, They, them, it's a group of scribes and Pharisees who think that Jesus should not be eating with sinners, who think that the ministry of Jesus is getting a little bit out of control. All right. Well, we're only like five chapters into the book of Luke. We can pretty quickly like look backwards and see what's happening. I'll tell you this. On the one hand, while this parable talks a lot about new and old, man, in some ways, in some ways, Jesus is the new thing, right? I mean, he's eating with sinners and the Pharisees are scratching their heads. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. Like he's literally bringing the kingdom of God to the earth where they live. That's new. But in some other ways, what Jesus is actually doing is actually really old, older than the Pharisees. If you, if you think about it, the birth story of Jesus and Zechariah's song and Mary's song, and when he goes into the temple to be dedicated as a little baby, I think it's kind of cool that we had a baby dedication today that like Tucker was up here today. You know, his parents and children were being dedicated. Well, when Jesus was dedicated in the temple in Luke's gospel, like this woman Anna and this man Simeon, they come out of the woodwork to bless the family and bless the baby, and everybody keeps saying the same thing. Everybody keeps saying, hey, all the stuff God promised 2,000 years ago to Abraham, man, it's happening in this kid. So in some ways, what Jesus is doing is not new. It's old. It's the fulfillment of the old. It's the fulfillment of everything old. It is what God has always been doing. Like from eternity past, God knew that Christ would be the atoning sacrifice to take away your sins, their sins, our sins. So in some ways, what Jesus is doing is actually the oldest thing that God's done, okay? But in that moment... These guys had built up their traditions, their customs, their habits, their preferences. They did not have a lot of room for Jesus. So let me just recount some of the things that have happened so far, okay? In chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus preaches in his church, in his hometown church, in the synagogue of Nazareth. He preaches a sermon from the book of Isaiah, and before the sermon is over, they run him out and they want to stone him. Not going well. When Jesus brings his, his thoughts about God and about the gospel into their synagogues, it's not always well received. So his first sermon in Luke chapter 4, they tried to kill him. That's not good. Also in chapter 4, he goes into another synagogue in Capernaum, and he casts a demon out of a guy. And you say, well, what's the big deal there? Well, the big deal is there's a demon in church. I mean, probably not supposed to happen. Hope it hasn't happened today, but that's not good. Chapter 5, Jesus starts to call his disciples, 12 of them. Have you ever wondered why 12? Because he's making the people of God over again. you got 12 tribes, but now you've got 12 disciples. Jesus is doing kind of a new thing. The Pharisees watched him heal the guy that was dropped down through the roof. you remember that story? Four men had faith, dropped their friend down, and Jesus, he healed him. But he did so much more than that. Jesus looks at the faith of these four guys, looks at the man on the mat, and he says, hey man, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's much bigger than saying, I'm going to make it so that you can walk, your body works. He said, your sins are forgiven, guy. Everybody was blown away. To prove it, he said, fine, stand up, take your mat, go home. The guy gets up. 
And the people, the Pharisees, these people, the they in this passage, their first thought is, he's a blasphemer. He cannot forgive sins. So, so far in just two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, like there has been a lot of challenge between these guys who are not loving the way Jesus represents God on the earth. The straw that broke the camel's back was when Levi the tax collector got saved. And after Levi the tax collector got saved, he had a banquet for Jesus. And you know who came to the banquet at Levi the tax collector's house? All of his friends. And guess who his friends were? Tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus goes. Jesus eats. He teaches them about God. He's changed one life. It's about to have a a ripple effect and change a lot of other people's lives. But the Pharisees are watching this party at Levi's house, and they're saying, how could a righteous teacher eat with a tax collector? In our customs and traditions, you can't do that. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. There's nothing in the Old Testament that says he couldn't. But in their customs, their preferences, their traditions, their religious structure, they're saying no. Okay, so I need you to see that the they is opposed to Jesus, and they're not changing their mind. At the end of this gospel, the high priest that's like their boss, he says, let's kill Jesus. At the end of this gospel, they're they're like Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, 70 elders, they say, let's kill Jesus. At the end of this gospel, when he's in trial, they're saying he's a blasphemer, kill Jesus. They don't change their mind. In Luke chapter 7, it tells you that they wouldn't be baptized by John because they thought all of this was illegitimate. And here's why. Because they were in charge of man-made religion, of the customs and traditions that they had added on top of God's law. They held the keys to that kingdom. They held the power structure there. And they're not about to give it up to Jesus. Okay, so that's the context. That's what's happening in the background. This little parable about wine and wineskins. It's not just about, like, can we change things, new and old budding heads, although that's kind of true. It's bigger than that. It's about whether these people wanted to force Jesus under their control in their religious system. Now, hold on. Before you and I say, hey, what does that mean for me? I'll be honest with you. I look around and we still do the same thing today. Now, we're not Pharisees. I know that. We're not Sadducees, I know that, but we still try to make Jesus fit our preferred forms of religious ritual instead of letting Christ Jesus be king. We still are quick to say, in my opinion, or I think we should, regardless of what Jesus said. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to heal the church when we recover the mission and the character of Jesus over our preferences. So buckle your seatbelt, let's move through this passage. All right, so is this about change? The second thing you put in your notes Is it about change? Because when we think about the new wine and new wineskins, like you can learn a lot about change. In other words, is the passage saying that change has to be like, it can't be subtle, that if you're going to do a new thing, you need to just go for it and do it totally new? Maybe that's one way to change things. But that's not the only paradigm for social change. Social change can change slowly sometimes. You can adapt something. This is not a commentary on how all change has to go. Change is not the point about this. Can you change social structures being informed by this? Yeah, sure you can. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have to? No. I mean, if I grew up in a family whose rules were so far from God, who didn't love the Lord, 
who didn't submit to the Lord, and then I got saved, and I started trying to raise my family, oh, I would definitely draw on this passage. I would definitely say, hey, man, I need new wineskins because the old skins cannot hold what God's doing. I need a new system, a new way of doing things. But this is not just about change. This is about the gospel or man-made religion, and I'll show you. I'll show you. Take a look at this passage. So they're talking about fasting, right? In verse, look in your Bible, verse 33, they ask Jesus about fasting. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking, okay? So the question is about fasting. In the Old Testament, there's basically one fast that everybody's supposed to keep every year from God. God says the Day of Atonement is supposed to be a day of fasting. Now, it's fine that they added other fasts. People fasted. I, in my Sunday school class this morning, we read about Esther. And Esther said, please fast and pray for three days. Nothing wrong with that. But what went from one command from God and some good ideas from people eventually became the practice. So that Pharisees fasted two days a week every, every week to show their righteousness. And if you didn't do it, you weren't a good Pharisee. Yet we have the habit of stacking customs and traditions on top of what God gives us. And what we end with is kind of rigid. It's what happened for them. So they say, Jesus, your disciples aren't fasting. John's do. Ours do. What's wrong with you? And then look at what Jesus says in response to them. It's this whole wedding imagery. Boy, I'm telling you what, this is the summer of Carterville weddings, right? We, there have been a bunch this summer, and they've got one more coming up. But look at what he says, verse 34. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? Wait a second, wait a second. Do you see what he's saying? In the big story of the Bible, the whole arc from Adam and Eve to the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation, the church, God's people, are the bride of Christ. We're being given to God in a covenant that you can think of as marriage. And Jesus is standing here this moment saying, I am the bridegroom. Like, I am the hope of all creation, and I always have been. And for this moment, while I stand on the earth, it will be wrong for my disciples to, fa to mourn, to fast, to weep. But then look what he says, verse 35. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. I, I read some commentators who said you should read Isaiah 53, verse 8, when you hear this bridegroom is taken away from them. Yeah, Isaiah 53, if you've never read it, famously, it's a passage in the Old Testament that almost portrays Jesus Christ on a cross. I'll read it to you. I want you to hear some of these words. Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed our message, or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We, we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was, on, that 
brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, I want you to hear in the midst of this language that just sounds so clearly to proclaim the crucifixion of Christ. I want you to hear verse 8 as the good shepherd as the lamb that was slain is snatched from his people. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So Jesus tells these Pharisees, there's a day coming when the groom will be taken away. And Bible commentators think, as I do, that he's telling them there's a day when in false judgment, in a perversion of justice, your people are going to kill me. And I'll be snatched away from these people. They can mourn then. For right now, they should have all the parties and banquets at Levi's house they can stand because God is driving Satan out. Because people are getting their life back, their sobriety back, their sanity back. People are being healed in Jesus' name. Right now is not the time to mourn. When you take me away, when you kill me, they can mourn for three days. So this is about the crucifixion of Christ as compared to man-made religion. So the point here, we're talking about like, what does he mean by tearing the cloth, bursting the skins? Like he, he gives this example after saying all this, knowing they've already thought him a blasphemer, knowing they're condemning him for sinners who are being saved and rejoicing and Jesus celebrating when the prodigal comes home, knowing that the religious leaders of his day are, are at opposite ends of the spectrum from Jesus, he gives them these two parables He says, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Why? Because when the new patch, when the new cloth shrinks, the old has already shrunk, when the new shrinks, it will rip the old garment and the whole will be worse. He says this, nobody takes new wine that still has to let off its gases as it ferments. It's still going to bubble and expand in a wineskin. Nobody puts a new new wine that still has to stretch and grow in an old wineskin or it'll burst the skins. Let me explain this. I got a little picture. Carter, will you give us that image that's on the screen. This is what it would look like to have a wineskin. That, bless his heart, a few days ago that was a goat. Um, So what they would do is they would skin a goat and freshly after the goat was skinned they would store wine in it. While the skin would still have enough elasticity to stretch, they would sew it up tight so that as the wine begins to stretch and expand, the skin can stretch with it. So when the wine gives off gases and it starts, instead of breaking the wineskin, The wine and the skins can grow together. But if you took a used wineskin, an old one that had already done all the stretching and expanding it to do, and filled it with fresh new wine that still had yet to ferment, then when it began to stretch and expand, the skin couldn't stretch with it. It would burst. And Jesus is looking at these Pharisees, and I don't know if you're catching this, but their religious systems with the extra commands and traditions, with Caiaphas the high priest in charge, with them telling Jesus he can't rejoice with sinners at Levi's house, with them telling Jesus he's a blasphemer for healing people and forgiving their sins, their system is the old wineskins. Their system is the old cloth. And Christ Jesus, the Messiah, has come now. And as he's walking through Galilee, giving people their life back, the Pharisees cannot find a way to work Jesus into their system. And let me, let me warn you, 
you can't work Jesus into your system either. The fundamental mistake that they were making is the fundamental mistake we make today. We want to meet Jesus and look at him and say, you look really good to me, Jesus. I like what I've got going on. I would like to incorporate you into my life and my systems and my structures. We even say, I want to invite you into my heart. Listen, gang, when we give our lives to Christ Jesus, we surrender control. He's Lord and we're not. And what's happening in this passage is Jesus warning these guys, you can't force fit me into your system. It will rip. And the challenge, I think, for the modern church is the same thing these folks faced. If you try to add Jesus to your world and make Jesus conform to your religious preferences and patterns and routines and rituals, you're going to feel the stretching and tearing, the ripping of hypocrisy. You're going to feel what it feels like for the, if, you're a Bible, if you read your Bible a lot. And you're going to feel what it feels like to be Galatians chapter 2. Judaizers that are trying to walk with Jesus one day and trying to go back to the Jewish law the next day. You're going to feel the pressure. It's not going to work. This doesn't fit. I wonder if there's anybody in here who's trying to do this. I just want to speak directly, okay? Can I speak? Can I, can I be super direct? There's some of us that before we met Christ, man, we were sexually immoral. We had our own ideas. We thought that was our world. And we gave our life to Jesus, but we still wanted that part of our lives to ourselves. We still wanted to do what we wanted to do in that part of our world. And now here we are, we find ourselves living a double life. Trying to see if Jesus will come and bless what we want to create instead of just allowing Jesus to build what he wants. Let me just keep being direct. Man, I, in my Sunday school class, man, I'm so richly blessed. I, I, think, I think that I have the best Sunday school class in this church family. And I hope you think you do too, and we'll arm wrestle after church to see who wins. But I think I do. I love my crew. And in my Sunday school class, and in our ministries at Carterville, man, I have gotten to walk with brothers and sisters that are experiencing legitimate recovery, huge change in life, watching literally miracles happen in people's lives over time. But I'll, I'll tell you this, something else I see that's sad. I'll see brothers and sisters who want recovery from alcohol or addictions of any kind, and they come in, they find freedom and healing in CR. They find a church that loves them. They find the truth of Jesus. They find a path to walk. They, they, they find what they needed in Christ. And Jesus begins to bless them, and at some point in their journey, I have seen some of my brothers and sisters look up and say, hey, that'll do it. That's enough. That's where I wanted to get. And instead of total surrender, instead of looking at Jesus and saying, hey, I'm a new wine skin for your new wine. What do you want? We say, whoa, 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 whoa. I have already got an expectation of what I want you to do, and you've met it. That's enough. That's far enough. Stop right there. This is plenty. You've given me a job. You gave me a car. Got a girlfriend. I'm good. Listen to me, friends. If you are trying to force Jesus into your preferred box, he will break it. And the box they were trying to fit him into was a preferred religious form. You fit Judaism. If you'll answer to the high priest and come speak at my synagogue and agree with my teaching, I'll let you be our miniature Messiah. Jesus did not come to be a miniature Messiah. He came to be the king of creation. And there's only one response that we can give to him. We give him our entire lives. Throw the old wineskins out and start over. 
Let him do a new thing and do not try to force him into your structures and patterns and expectations and preferences and habits. Do you hear me? And it doesn't matter if these are church structures, I like it better when we sing this or do this, or these are our expectations for what we'll do. I'm telling you, when you give your life to Christ, give it all. Or you're going to hear the ripping and the tearing of old cloth. You're going to feel the pain and the stretching and the spilling of bursted skin. Do you understand what I'm saying? So dad, if you're leading your household and you want one hand on Jesus and one hand on on your control, I'm asking you this Sunday, would you drop it and grab Jesus with both hands? Kids, if you are trying to follow Christ through high school, but you just need to fit into the in crowd enough, I'm asking you, would you forget fitting in anywhere and just follow Jesus? I'm telling you, if you try to force Christ Jesus into old systems, he breaks them. And you live as a hypocrite, confused, sadly, Luke, Mark doesn't say this, Matthew doesn't say this, and both of them say, tell you this story. Matthew doesn't say this, Mark doesn't, but Luke is the only evangelist to tell you this last statement in verse 39. And I'm going to tell you, as a pastor of a church in the South, this statement is hard for me to read because it is sad. It says this, And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Jesus is looking at men who have literally watched God send Messiah to the earth, give people their sanity back, cast out demons, heal the sick, redeem tax collectors, and bring them to the family of God. You are literally watching God win the earth and save the lost, and they are still sulking, standing in the corner and saying, I like the old way better. I I liked it better before. And Jesus has given us a commentary that stings, cuts to the core. Then when we are drunk on that old wine, our control, our tradition, our preferences, our expectations, the good old days, the way we want it, I think, I believe, I want, I prefer, we will stand in front of God Almighty and look Christ Jesus right in the face and say, I like the old way better. Gang, we don't get to veto Jesus. What a fool to watch Matthew's party, to see Levi's sinner friends being saved. And still sit on the sidelines sulking and complaining. What a fool to watch Jesus casting out demons and then say, hey, I'll give you my blessing to do some of that if you'll do it my way. Shut the door on your synagogue and let him be king. That's what I'd say to them. What would I say to us? Because here we are in Mississippi in the South, and we all know as Baptists we love our customs and traditions. I do. We can be the world's worst at looking up and saying, give me Jesus as long as he'll do it my way. And I'm telling you, this text is preaching to us that that's not possible. And so if, brother and sister, you have found that you've given Jesus just enough of yourself to claim that you did it, or if, brother and sister, you're you see in the mirror that you're trying to force Jesus not to be Lord of creation, Lord of your heart, but to come in and lead just a little bit. I'm asking you to repent of it today. I'm asking you to change, because here's here's the deal. This passage makes it super clear that you have two choices, not three. Two, not three. You can choose 
to drink the old wine. As a Baptist, you can't. I'm just kidding. You can choose to drink the old wine. You can choose to stay in control, to stay in charge. You can choose your traditions, your customs, your preferences. You can choose to vote Jesus out every Sunday if you want to. You can choose that. And you can live that hypocritical pretending until the day you die. And you'll probably still get a decent funeral from somebody. You won't have a great judgment. Or you can drink the new wine. You can give Christ Jesus your life as a changed wineskin, a new vessel for his spirit to use. You can submit and surrender to Jesus and let him be Lord. But there is no third path. Jesus won't be your co-pilot. He will not be your coach. He's not going to come into your world and help you a little bit. He's going to be your Lord or you might as well leave. But this passage, Jesus makes it super clear. There's not a third option. Friends, I've played church a lot in my life. Been here on Sundays. Grew up in Sugar Lock Baptist Church doing the same thing. My, the title for my testimony when I give it in church, when I give it in my Sunday school classes, I was playing church. I'd go through religious routines and rituals. I would worship and use the name of Christ, and I had an affection for him. But I did not let him be my Lord Monday through Saturday. I gave him one part of one day a week. And I'm telling you, that was just playing church. That's not what's happening in the New Testament. I want to invite our worship team up here. And I don't want to see a line at the liquor store when this church is over, because if it is, you misunderstood me. <laughs> but I am asking you today, would you take the new wine? What I'm asking you today is if you stand where the Pharisees stood, and you're wrestling between what you've known and preferred, what was comfortable and controlled, but you know Jesus is asking you something brand new. I don't care if you're 75 or if you're 7. I'm asking you, would you let Jesus Christ be in total control? And for some of you, that'll mean this is the day of your salvation. That on this pew, you'll give Jesus Christ your life forever. We'll baptize you and we'll bless you as you walk your path with Jesus for the rest of your life. For some of you, it'll mean that you're already saved and you know it, but for a long time you've been hard-hearted and hard-headed and it's time for that to change. And today you want to stand here recognizing that you need the work of Jesus. If that's you, then repent. And don't stand for half measures. Surrender to Jesus and let him invite you to Levi's party. I promise you this is a better, more beautiful way to follow God. Father, I ask your grace over us as we listen for your voice. Would you convict us? Lord, don't convict us of somebody else's sin. I'm not asking, God, that we would see the sinners around us. I'm asking that in your great mercy, you would show us how to obey you, how to run to the light, how to be blessed in the Spirit. God, would you show each one of us what we need to see? What do you find in our heart? And God, I pray that in the ministry of Christ, you would take it, that you'd heal it. Lord, if there's anybody in our church today that's giving their life to you for the first time, that's being saved, being born again, then I pray, Lord, that you would bless their prayer, that you would hear it and redeem them. And Lord, for all of us that lift our eyes to you and ask for the ministry of mercy, that we'd be 
under the lordship of Jesus without our traditions and preferences and customs in charge. God, I pray that we would make that great exchange and be blessed for the days we have left to live. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, in a moment you're going to stand. In a moment you're going to sing. These altars are open for prayer. Would you come forward and pray? I'm here if you need me to pray with you or for you. Do your business with the Lord. Do not run. Do not hide. Today's the day. Let's stand.